All right, if you got a Bible, uh, get to the book of Habakkuk. And if you need to use the table of contents to find the book of Habakkuk, there is no shame in that. The table of contents is a resource to be used, not a resource to be ignored, okay? Here in November, we are doing a four-part message series called Return to the Lord, looking at uh, four of the uh, 12 minor prophets toward the end of the Old Testament there. So last week, we looked at Hosea, and today we look at Habakkuk, and it's only three chapters long. I believe it's going to be a timely word for many of you in your households and what you're walking through. Prophets speak on behalf of God. So God says to the prophet, say this, and the prophet says that to God's people. And for the most part, God used prophets to call people back to faith and obedience to him, to return to him, to, uh, to repent and walk in faith, calling people to return to the Lord. And Habakkuk was one of those prophets. The book of Habakkuk was written about 600 B.C., but what I love about it, uh, one truth is it's God's living and active word. And so it's completely relevant completely timely for our lives here in this year. Reading through Habakkuk is like reading a journal entry between one man, the prophet, and the Lord. And in this journal, we see Habakkuk asking some big questions of the Lord, questions such as, where are you? Where are you, Lord? Why aren't you doing something? And then when he hears what the Lord is doing, him questioning, saying, I don't agree with that plan. Why are you doing it that way? And he's asking those kind of questions because what he sees in both the people of God and the culture at large is this widespread immorality and idolatry. Evil seems to be winning the day. Those who lack integrity, for instance, seem to be prospering. And all around Habakkuk, he has seen, uh, he has seen injustice. It's leading him to complain to the Lord saying, where are you, Lord? Why aren't you doing something? And then why, aren't, why are you doing it that way? A quick overview of the book's conversation looks something like this. It starts off with Habakkuk complaining to God that he doesn't like what's going on around him. God responds with, in a sense, I've got a plan, trust me. Habakkuk responds with, I'm not sure if I like that plan. And the Lord says, I've got a plan, trust me. And then we get to chapter 3 and Habakkuk responds with a trust in the Lord. Back and forth like that, two complaints of Habakkuk and then two responses by the Lord and then we get to chapter 3 and it records the prophet's worship of the Lord and the circumstances keep in mind haven't changed when he got to chapter 3 what changed was his heart what changed was the heart of the prophet pastor Warren Wearsby broke the three chapters of Habakkuk into chapter 1 being wondering wondering before the Lord chapter 2 waiting upon the Lord and then chapter 3 being worship of the Lord and throughout this little book there's this theme of faith that the righteous the people of God will live by faith so we won't won't put our faith in what's happening around us or anything earthly but only the Lord himself Habakkuk has to learn to trust God even when he doesn't like agree or understand God's plan can you relate to that my safe bet is that you can I know I have some of you are there right now where you're, you're thinking to yourself, you've never even, you potentially not verbalized it, but you're thinking, Lord, I don't understand why this is happening. I don't understand why this seems to be occurring. And yet, you would also confess that you're trusting in the Lord, but you have these kind of 
big questions. The word Habakkuk actually means to embrace or to wrestle, which is a fitting definition because, in a sense, this is what we see him doing in this book. He is wrestling with the things of God that he doesn't understand. He is, despite his doubts, embracing the God who he trusts no matter the circumstances. So the context of his world is injustice, strife, conflict, oppression, corruption, violence, immorality, idolatry. God's people have turned away from the Lord. So, so it isn't just the world, it's, it's also God's people who have turned toward idolatry. The country is currently in disarray. I know this seems like a, sorry, a far, far off idea, but try to get your imagination around it and see if you can picture it in your mind. Habakkuk 1 Verse 1, the pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw, How long, Lord, must I call for help, and you do not listen, or cry out to you about, uh, cry out to you about violence, and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing, and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. Now that is an honest prayer. More or less saying, things don't seem fair, Lord. You're a good, holy, and sovereign God. So why are things like violence and oppression occurring, let alone seemingly winning? And in those verses, you see Habakkuk hitting this moment where, where what he sees isn't lining up with what he believes. He is struggling, and yet in the struggle, he doesn't grow bitter toward the Lord. Rather, he comes to the Lord in this gut-level, honest prayer with three basic questions. But there is, in a sense, also a respect in these questions, this reverent awe before the Lord, and yet questions for the Lord. So the first is, in a sense, you don't seem to care. Lord, I know you do, but I'm calling out to you, but you don't seem to listen. The second is, you aren't doing much when you could. Lord, I, I know that you're powerful enough to do something, but you're not. Why? And then the third, which he shares later in chapter 1, is what you're doing doesn't seem fair. What you're about to do doesn't seem to line up with who you are. It doesn't seem to line up with your nature and character. In a sense, Habakkuk is saying to the Lord, if I was in your shoes, I would have done something differently, vastly differently. May you be encouraged in this, loved ones. It is acceptable to wonder before the Lord, to ask questions, to wonder out loud in prayer, to express where you are struggling with unbelief or doubt or a lack of trust. Habakkuk gives us that example, but we see that elsewhere, especially in the Psalms. Throughout the Psalms, you see people crying out to God and asking these questions of, where are you? Where are you? And the prayers are not always neat and cleaned up, if you will. A few examples, if you want to read some this week. Psalm 25, Psalm 42, and then Psalm 73 is one of my favorites. 25, 42, and 73. All of those are examples that help us, teach us, of how to pray and talk to the Lord, especially in desperate times. Remember, brothers and sisters, one way we relate to the Father, one way we relate to the Lord is Him being our Heavenly 
Father. Jesus started teaching the disciples when they asked, teach us to pray. And he, he begins with, uh, let me show you a model prayer. And it begins with, our Father. He is the Father who sent His one and only Son for your rescue and your redemption and your salvation. He's adopted you as a son and daughter, given you a spirit, keeping you secure in His hand. He has saved you by grace so that the rest of your life you would express that dependence upon the Lord through prayer. So Habakkuk is in this tension where what he sees isn't lining up with what he believes. So what are we to do when what we see doesn't seem to line up with what we believe? And this is where he was and is in verses 2 through 4. We read those questions. And then verses 5 through 11, we read of the Lord's response. And what the Lord said to Habakkuk was not what he wanted to hear. We'll read verses 5 through 8. Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded. For I am doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize ter territories not its own. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like eagles swooping to devour. And then God goes on through verse 11, continuing to tell how powerful and awful the ba Babylonian people are. And here he calls them Chaldeans there in verse 6. In a sense, he's saying, here's the deal, Habakkuk. I know the Babylonians are a far worse people than you are but I'm going to use them to bring judgment upon the Israelites for the Israelites have turned their back on the Lord. The Israelites have been rebelling against the Lord, placing themselves up as their own God, putting their trust in themselves rather than the Lord. And the Lord is telling Habakkuk in those verses, your people, your people are putting your faith in themselves, but these guys, the Babylonians, will take it out. They will take it out. As verse 11 says, the Babylonians are guilty men whose own strength is their God. May that not describe God's people. May that not describe our Monday through Friday life. That our own strength is our God. For that describes the Babylonians, not the people of God. The Lord's saying to Habakkuk, the, the Babylonians, they will overcome your walls, your rulers, your army. If you're putting your trust in yourself, Habakkuk, then you're misplacing your trust and it's going to get exposed and really, really clear when the Babylonians come in. And so Habakkuk hears the Lord's plan is, and is more or less saying, what? You're, you're going to send the Babylonians in to judge us? I don't understand. And, and you want me, the prophet, to go tell the people of God this. The Babylonians are far worse than us, who are clearly an enemy of the Lord, are going to come in and to destroy us? Well, I've got some questions then, which he then begins his second complaint, starting in verse 12. And you see in, in this second complaint both simultaneous questions as well as simultaneous at the same time this, this statement of faith. I've got questions, and at the same time I'm, I'm stating I, I know who you are. So this happening at the same time, verse 12, Are you not from eternity, Lord my God? My Holy One, you will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment. 
my rock. You destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while the one, while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? Friends, the Lord is big enough to handle your questions and doubts expressed in prayer. He's a father who is able to both be near and hear, I know you're good, and at the same time, this doesn't seem to make sense. Notice that when Habakkuk has questions of the Lord, he doesn't run away or isolate himself, or, but he comes to the Father in prayer. In the season of confused wonder, he moves closer to the Father. And we should be doing the same thing. Rather than running away from the Father in a crisis of belief, we need to run to him, especially when we are confused and frustrated and wondering before the Lord. We need to run into his word, in his presence, with his people. And some of you are there right now. You're in this wondering chapter one season of life. And in chapter two, it doesn't necessarily get better. Habakkuk is waiting in chapter two, and none of us like to wait. In chapter one, he's hit this crisis of belief, and when he hit a crisis of belief, he has two choices. Will he choose to go back to trusting in himself and letting his own strength be his God and his ability to get through it and his ability to solve the problem? Or will he trust in the Lord? When what we are seeing with our eyes isn't lining up with what we believe in our hearts and minds, will we fall to the lie, the enemy's lie, that the Lord's infinite character has somehow changed in our life? Or that his faithfulness is no longer true in our life, or that his promises to never leave or forsake, they might apply to other people, but for some reason they've been broken in our life. Or will we choose to trust and walk by faith? It's often in the waiting seasons, the, the seasons of, it doesn't seem to be much visible change that I am able to see in my, able to see with my eyes right now. Those kind of seasons where we must intentionally choose to trust in him, embrace him, wrestle him cling to him in the waiting and chapter two is all about the waiting at the end of chapter one habakkuk has laid out another set of questions to the lord he hasn't run away from god but to him for the for god is good and he is beyond time and space he is both infinite and majestic and at the same time near and present and we know that because we're on the other side of the coming of jesus in the flesh the christmas story that he came near habakkuk declares verse one of chapter two then i will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower i will watch to see what he will say to me and what i should reply about my complaint the lord speaks to the prophet verse two the lord answered me write down this vision clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. So yes, Habakkuk, the Babylonians will overrun your people. Yes, judgment is coming for the unrepentant sin of the people. And it might seem like it's delaying. It might seem like it's lingering, but it isn't. It will certainly come. It will not delay. Now in history... It delays, it lingers 13 years. 
Why would the Lord seemingly delay judgment? Why wouldn't he just come in like I used to in my flesh as a father sometimes and bring swift judgment? Because he wanted to give time for people to return to the Lord. For people to repent of their sin. To no longer disagree with the Lord, but agree with Him. To no longer walk contrary to Him, but in alignment with His Word. Because that leads to freedom. To turn from their old creation ways and turn toward new life in Him. Obedience to the Lord. The Lord who was for them and for their good, for their freedom, for their joy. In the waiting, the Lord develops endurance in us. How do we know that? Well, James 1, 2-4 gives us that promise. Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various, tri various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. In the trial of waiting, the Lord is working. The Lord is working, and not just out there, but most importantly, in what we often skip over, He is at work in in here, in our own hearts, in our own minds, developing our endurance, deepening our faith muscles, stretching us beyond our existing boundaries of comfort. And yet what is happening, we see in James 1, is that in the midst of that, he is, he is maturing us into the character of Jesus. And anybody who has stretched and deepened muscles and all of that physical activity knows that there is, at times, pain involved in that. There's lactic acid that builds up in that. And yet, it is producing something on the other side of that trial that wouldn't be produced without the trial because the Lord is at work. The New Living Translation says, verse 3, this way. This vision is for a future time. It describes the end. It will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently, for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. As the New Testament church, we are collectively waiting on the second coming of Christ. The church has been waiting for centuries. It feels like delay. It isn't. The Lord's providential plan is in motion. The redemption of his people. We are in the midst of a redemption story that he is writing throughout history. We are not called to passive, apathetic waiting. We are called to prayerful, mission-minded, go-and-make-disciples-of-all-nations faith-filled waiting why why are we called to mission in the midst of waiting because the reality is true both in habakkuk's day and our day that the lord is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish but all to come to repentance verse 4 says in the csb look his ego is inflated he is without integrity but the righteous one will live by his faith the nlt says it this way look at the proud they trust in themselves and their lives are crooked, but the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. In the waiting, especially in the waiting, we live by faith in the Lord who is faithful generation after generation, so we must reject proud living. Living that trusts in ourselves because we're the Lord's people. And the Lord's people, through faith alone, by grace alone, have been made right with the Lord. We are covered in His righteous, righteousness because He bore our unrighteousness on the cross. And so the righteous, the people who have a right standing with God, who have received that right standing by grace alone, will live by faith and not by sight. Not by circumstances, but in the cornerstone of Christ. 
unmovable, steady in the storm, unshakable from beginning to end. And then verse 5, the Lord is, is beginning to tell Habakkuk, I understand the Babylonians are ungodly. Now, I understand who they are, and justice will come their way. Wrongs will be made right. Why? Because our God is holy. Because our God is righteous. He is just. And in this section of chapter 2, verses 6 through 19, the Lord pronounces five woes upon the ungodly Babylonians. And with each one, Habakkuk is being reminded of the Lord's sovereign sight. Be encouraged. Your father in heaven is not a senile grandfather, asleep at the wheel or asleep in the rocking chair, staring at the corner of the room. He's a supernatural father who cares for his children. He knows all, sees all, justice toward wrong will be served. So the five woes, verse 6, woe to him who amasses what is not his. How much longer and loads himself with goods taken in pledge. Verse 9, woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house to place his nest on high to escape the grasp of, da- of disaster. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. Verse 15, woe to him who gives his neighbors drink, pouring out your wrath and even making them drunk in order to look at their nakedness. And then verse 19, woe to him who says to wood, wake up. Or to a mute stone, come alive. Can it teach? Look, it may be plated with gold and silver, yet there is no breath in it at all. So woe to those who steal and rob what is not theirs. To those who cheat and deceive, those who are violent and unjust to others, those who give themselves over to the pleasures of the flesh and substances and lust, and those who are idolaters, worshiping the created thing rather than the creator. Justice will be served in the end. The Lord is telling Habakkuk, if you wait, you will see my justice displayed toward the proud Babylonians. I know it doesn't make much sense that I'm bringing them in to judge the people, but Habakkuk, trust me, I see who the Babylonians are, I know what they're like, I'm a just God, my word is sure. Now what happens when you don't see this promise fulfilled in your lifetime? What happens when you see when it seems like it delays, if you will, your entire lifetime? What if you don't see it come to pass on the earth? What if there are questions that continue to linger that are never answered until you meet Jesus? We've all got those. What if the clarity of what our Father in heaven is doing doesn't become clear this side of heaven? Well, verse 20 in chapter 2 says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. I love that that verse follows the chaos of all these woes. But what about all this injustice, Lord? What about the immorality, the idolatry, the oppression, the strife, the conflict? But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. But what about when I don't understand your plans, Lord? What if I don't agree with them? What if I'm asking these questions of where are you and why aren't you doing something and why are you choosing to do it that way? And But the Lord is in his holy temple, brothers and sisters. It hasn't changed. But the whole earth, including you, including me and our households, 
be silent in his presence. I'm in my 15th year of coaching middle school basketball. And one thing I try to do as a coach, I'm not always great at this, um, I try not to raise my voice too often. Now, I'm in the Lord's house. I have raised my voice some this year. But I try not to have that be a general practice because I want them to tune into my voice when I'm not screaming at them because it becomes white noise. And so this group is a talkative group. Okay, That's the nice way to say it. They're a talkative group. And... Uh, and so trying to get their attention sometimes can be, it, it can be difficult. And so like a grade school teacher, if you will, when the, cl when the class is up in arms and you just try to talk in a consistent voice, consistent voice, and then one kid catches it, another kid catches it, and, and slowly you have their attention. I have one kid on my team who likes to speed that process up. And so I begin talking, and he's like, hey, 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 listen! Okay, I, I don't need that, I told him recently i don't need that i don't need you to be the coach i just need you to listen because if we train our ears to the noise then we will become addicted to the noise we have to train our ears in this case for the basketball team they need to train their ears to my voice that can find their way into just chaos so they would listen to it as god's people i think many of us especially in the last 18 19 20 months have become addicted to the noise. We love the noise. We thrive on the noise. We thrive on, the, uh, on what it produces in us, the emotion it produces in us. We must come back to this verse. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. In the midst of a cluttered chaos of our culture, may we, God's people who live by faith, in a forever faithful God, may we be the ones not adding and contributing to the noise, but may we be leading, leading the way through our actions, our way of life, what we say, what we share, leading the way in the reality that the Lord is in His holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent, be in reverent awe, of him in his presence. Habakkuk wonders in chapter 1. He waits in chapter 2. He's prayerful through all of it. The circumstances have not changed. His perspective on the situation has though. So out of chapter 1 and 2, a worship song grows out of Habakkuk's heart. And that is what we find in chapter 3. It's a worship song that he wrote following and in the midst of wondering and waiting. And what we see is Habakkuk embracing the Lord who has not forsaken him, embracing him in the delays, in the doubt, in the trial. Verse 2 of Habakkuk 3 says, Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. Lord, I've heard of all these incredible things you have done in the past, recounted in the Old Testament. I've heard about it, I've read about it, but I haven't seen it, he's saying. And I want to see it. The, Lord, uh, the word there, revive, can also be translated renew or restore. Renew and restore your works in our day. Lord, I've heard of your past faithfulness. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. 
And what Habakkuk is doing here is remembering. And remembrance leads us to worship and trust. Beginning in verse 3, Habakkuk's going to start looking back then on what the Lord has done for his people over the years. And as he remembers, it leads to an increased faith in the faithful Lord. So from verses 3 through 15, Habakkuk is recounting of how the Lord delivered his people out of bondage in Egypt, how the Lord set them free from slavery, part of the Red Sea, allow the whole nation to cross over on dry land, then as the nation crossed over, crushed the Egyptians as the water came back over them. How in Joshua, it gives the account of how the Lord took his people across the Jordan River when it was at flood stage, as they put their feet in the water in faith, he stopped up the water, his people crossed over in safety into the promised land. And Habakkuk is singing in worship, I've heard of your past faithfulness in delivering our people. I remember it, Lord. Do it again, Lord. Revive your works in these years. If you want a verse to be praying for our nation, choose Habakkuk 3.2. Remembrance leads us to faith-filled worship. And not only should we be remembering back in our lives how he's been faithful to us, before us, on our laps, we have story after story of recounting God's faithfulness in years past as well as his promised faithfulness in the future. Then verse 16, after remembering how the Lord's plans came to pass in history, it leads Habakkuk to this place of deep trust and reverence that the Lord's plans in his day will come to pass as well. So verse 16, I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. And then in verses 17 through 19, Habakkuk sings some of the richest verses in the whole story. A powerful picture of faith and trust. This isn't lip service. This is a declaration out of an overflow of a heart that is growing not perfect, but growing in trust and dependence. So verse 17, though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer. And enables me to walk on mountain heights. His circumstances, catch this, they didn't change. They haven't changed at all. And yet his worship and trust in the Lord is not determined by his circumstances. Frankly, his circumstances sound pretty desperate. There's famine across the land. There's, there's no fig tree, no fruit, no olive crop. No crop at all. No animals. And even though, he says, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. For according to Romans 8, no circumstance, including earthly, can separate us and take us away from the love of the Father found through Jesus Christ, the Son. So what is your even though circumstance? Even though I'm grieving great loss, I will rejoice in the Lord. Even though I'm worn out and weary, I will rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord, even though my job is a great challenge, I will rejoice in the Lord. Even though I am watching a loved one suffer, I will rejoice in the Lord. Even though the prodigal 
hasn't returned home yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. Even though I'm waiting on adoption or conception, I will rejoice in the Lord. Even though our marriage or our family is pressed and squeezed into trial, I will rejoice in the Lord. Even though the nation is not going in the direction I would pray it would, I will rejoice in the Lord. Even though I face earthly rejection by family or friends, I will rejoice in the Lord. Even though I prayed for this, whatever this is to happen, and it hasn't come to pass, I will rejoice in the Lord. Even though I don't like this, understand this, am confused by this, whatever this is, I will rejoice in the Lord. Habakkuk is not dismissing difficult circumstances. He's not pretending that they're not there. He's just weaved them into his worship song. He spent an entire verse saying, here's all that's wrong right now. So he's not doing this weird Christian thing of pretending that difficulty is not in his life. He's recounting them with detail, and at the same time, he's rejoicing. And we can do the same thing, brothers and sisters. It is as if he's restating them in order to declare to his own heart, I will rejoice, I will embrace the Lord, I will worship him in the midst of the famine. It won't win my heart, the fear won't rule this heart, for the righteous will live by faith. And when I'm tempted to drift toward fear or drift toward arrogance or tr- drift toward this finding my own strength and my own ability, I will run to the Father in prayer. When we consider the cross of Christ, it is the collision of grieving and rejoicing at the same time. The greatest injustice in human history, and yet the Lord uses it for His good. The salvation of all who would believe. The cross is the moment where the justice of God meets the mercy of God. We see both realities on display. Habakkuk prayed in verse 2 of chapter 3, In your wrath, remember mercy. Well, that's what the Father did on the cross. Sin has consequences. The penalty of death, Romans tells us. And yet, the just penalty, the weight of sin, was laid upon the Son. He bore our sins on that tree, in his body, so that we might be healed, so that through faith alone, by grace alone, we could be saved, be made righteous by the work of the Son. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. The woes that were ours, and we walk through that Babylonian list, and none of us come out clean, The woes that were ours became his wounds, and by his wounds, brothers and sisters, you have been healed. You have been set free to worship him, to express love and devotion to him, no matter the circumstances, because our salvation in Christ is secure. And as long as we have breath in our lungs, our mission here remains. Our mission remains, and that mission is to bring glory to God by making disciples of Jesus, of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us so that we would be a community of disciples who are devoted to Jesus, growing in that, growing in our dedication, our love for one another, and growing in our drive, our pursuit, our prayerful activity of making disciples and reaching people with the hope and love of Jesus Christ. May we be found faithful in that mission 
as we, no matter what stage we're in, whether it's wondering, waiting, or worshiping, may we be found faithful in that mission so that more and more people might be able to, f- to find this solid anchor, this, this cornerstone for their life, this living hope despite circumstances. And his name is Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would enable our feet to be faith-filled and like that of a deer, able to navigate the valleys, the mountains, the obstacles, because you're our cornerstone. May you remind us that our footing is sure. May we be people who embrace you, who Habakkuk you as a way of life, not simply as a compartment to life, but all of life, whether mountain or valley, that we would embrace you, run to you, cling to you, and we would express that through prayer. Lord, we confess the temptation to make our own strength, our own God. So, so Lord, may we not fall to the way of our flesh or the world. May we instead cling to you, you who are our strength, our refuge, our redeemer. I pray for those who are wondering and struggling with big questions. I pray that you would minister to them and comfort them and speak to them through your word in the coming days. I pray for those who are waiting. May you give them an endurance that would come from your Holy Spirit and a prayerfulness I pray that for us as a people that we would be a chapter 3 of Habakkuk type of people, a, a people who are rejoicing in you, confessing our trust, our faith in you, no matter what the circumstances around us say. May you revive your works, restore them, renew them in our day. May it be for your glory alone. May your kingdom expand. Your name be exalted. We pray this in your name. Amen. Philippians 4, starting in verse 4, says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Paul writes, Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.